It's a true honor to be preaching in front of you all today. Um, if you can, please turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 8. You ready? Okay. I don't hear, uh, I think, pages being turned now, I think, so much so. Yeah, so again, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 8, the Apostle Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver, I, I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. If you ask the world what is love, the first thing you might hear is, baby, don't hurt me. I'm glad you guys kind of got that reference there. The thing is, the world is very confused when it comes to love. They don't really understand it. They talk about it, but they don't really understand it. And ironically, they actually hate love. They don't really love love. In fact, if you ask them to define what is love, they'll say, well, love is love. Well, everyone knows or should know that you can't really define a word by using the same word to define it. But that's how confused they are today. This text will help us understand what is love. That's, you know, um, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 8. It's a very popular text. People usually use it for weddings or to talk about marriage. And it's not necessarily wrong to do that. But it's not primarily about marriage. It's not primarily about dating. I know many unbelievers who will quote this text on social media or even get tattoos on it, but they have no idea what it means, nor do they really want to live up to what it really says. It's actually primarily about church. That's what this text is really about. It's about church, how to do church or how to be the church. It's how God wants you to treat people in this church, including people who might be very difficult, including people who may have offended you. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, which is 1 Corinthians, to a very divided church in Corinth. 
they were divided over church leaders. They would say things like, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of um, Cephas, which is the Apostle Peter. They were divided over sexual sin. You had a member of the church who was sleeping with his, uh, with his um, stepmother. And people were not sure what to do about that. They were suing each other. They were also disagreeing, not just disagreeing, but actually just intense division over what to do with food offered to idols. They were also divided over the Lord's Supper. Some people would come in there really just to have a good meal instead of really coming there to celebrate what Christ has done in his coming, in his life, death, and resurrection. And especially in the previous chapter, which is chapter 12, they were divided over spiritual gifts, which is why the first part of this text that we're uh, looking at today starts off talking about spiritual gifts. But altogether, what it means is that they were impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, arrogant, rude, insisting on on their own way, irritable, and resenting each other over all these things. In other words, they were not loving each other. But as I said, this text is primarily about the local church, but it's also about all kinds of relationships. It's about coworkers. It's about marriages. It's about friendships. It's about parents. It's about even your enemies. I'll read verse 1 to 3 again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Not just a bit of something, nothing. If I give away all I have and I I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That part of the scriptures is, to me, one of the most convicting texts in all of the Bible. What it's saying is, especially in verse 1 and 2, even if you have amazing spiritual gifts, but you're not using them in love, it's not benefiting anyone. God is not pleased, and you're not blessing people if you're not doing so in love. It benefits no one. You've accomplished nothing. I realize that I have a, there's a beautiful drum set in front of me. I'm actually, it's really nice. And the drummer is an incredible, I'm, I'm all of the, the worship team, it's amazing. I'm um, truly just grateful for what you guys have, uh, how, you, how you've served us. But despite this beautiful, these drums right here, or really all these instruments, if the people are not using them properly, 
if they're not using them well, it's frankly useless. Right? If the drummer, for example, I'm not picking on the drummer here, but if the drummer is not able to play it well, it just becomes noise. It's not music. Right? Some sounds are music, it's art. And there's some where it's like, oh, please stop. It's just noise. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. If you have spiritual gifts from God, but you're not using them in love, it's useless. So when you sing, when, you are in, when you're worshiping, just right now as we were singing, were you just kind of going through the motions? Were you singing for God? Or as the Bible says, singing to each other in love? Or was it just, I'm at church and we're singing, so let's just sing. Was it out of love? Christ doesn't just want your words. He wants your heart. Isaiah 29, verse 13, uh, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And he's saying that in judgment. That their, their words are honoring me, but their hearts are not. Therefore, it's useless. You can say all the right things, do all the right things, but if you're not doing so in love, God is not pleased. You gain nothing. In verse 3, where he says, If I give away all I have, and, I di- and I, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, if I give away all I have and I, give, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. When he says that, what he's saying is charity. All your donations that you may give to good causes, even the offering or tithing, if you're not doing so in love, if you are not, as the Bible says, a cheerful giver, no matter the amount you give, means nothing. It means nothing. Don't waste your gifts by not doing so in love. First Samuel fifteen to First Samuel fifteen verse twenty two, the Lord says, "Has the Lord has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God commands you to obey Him in love." But if you, if you sacrifice certain things for him, but you're not doing so in obedience to him in love, he's not pleased. Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to repeat that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, which means just you say Christ is your Lord, just because you say you are a Christian, just because you come to church doesn't mean that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean you really belong to him. Just because you said the right words or the sinner's prayer, if your heart isn't in it, if, it was, if it's not out of genuine love for him, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He continues in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you make all the sacrifices in the world, but you don't do it in love, you gain nothing. It's a waste. So when you make sacrifices at church, are you doing so in love? Or are you just doing so to get noticed? Let's be honest. It's very easy for us to be tempted by that where we're not being sincere. When you make sacrifices in your marriage, are you doing so in love? Or you're doing so to have one thing over your spouse? When you make sacrifices in any relationship, do you do so with joy? Do you do it without grumbling? When you make a sacrifice at work, do you, do you do it out of love for your coworkers, even your boss, out of love for God, or is it primarily about getting a promotion? Again, it's not wrong to you want to get a promotion, but what is your primary reason for making sacrifices? Let's get to verse 4 to 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, when we often say, you're making me lose my patience. I'm getting impatient because of you. According to God, that's not really how it works. People don't make you lose your patience. You make you make, lose your patience. You guys follow me? People might sin against you, but it is your heart your lack of love, your lack of patience, that's the issue for you. Are you patient with your spouse? Are you patient with your children? 
Um, I, I, I had lunch uh, with some uh, friends today, and uh, there was a question asked to me in terms of what has been the hardest thing about becoming a new father. I just, my wife gave birth to our son uh, last month, so it's, it's four weeks, so we're, I'm a very fresh new father. And the question was, what's been the hardest thing? And I said, it's realizing how impatient I am. And sometimes with an adult, it's easy to say, oh yeah, they are the problem. If it's my wife, I can say, my wife is the problem. With a child, if he's just crying, you know, because maybe he's hungry. Like, why are you crying so loud? He's not at fault. It's me. It's me. And any time you lose your patience, truly, every single time you lose your patience, it's your fault. Even when people sin against you and you become impatient, it's your sin. Do not repay evil for evil. There's never an excuse to become impatient. Love is kind. And let's remember, kindness is not necessarily niceness. Niceness is when you are kind of agreeable, right? It is when you are always pleasant, almost impossibly pleasant. Kindness really means gentleness. It means, now it's not wrong to be nice necessarily. I'm just saying the times where you might be justly not nice, like in a righteous way. Right? If I say to someone, repent or believe the gospel or you, you will face the wrath of God, well, that's not nice, but it's just, right? So kindness means gentleness, tender-hearted. It's not rude. Are you tender-hearted? Because you can say the truth, you can say the right things, but in a very unkind manner. And if we're honest, many of us, maybe every day we say unkind things, if not from our lips and our hearts. Colossians 4 verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Love is also not envious. It does not envy. It's also not boastful or arrogant. This is, um, we're I guess near the Christmas season. I know this is Advent. If maybe some of the younger people here today might be easy for us to understand envy in this way. If you get the Christmas present you were not really looking forward to, do you say, hmm, I wish I had what that other person had? That's envy. It really means ingratitude, not being grateful to what God has given you. Love 
does not boast, which is the opposite of envy. In the sense that when you refuse to, uh, to, to, to be boastful, you're being, you recognize that you recognize who you are in God, that you recognize that you are a humble person who deserves nothing, but God is gracious to you and gives you anything you have comes from God. So we should be grateful. So we do not boast. But do you brag about what you have? It can be very easy. Sometimes we'll make it seem like we're just being thankful when really we're just, I want this person to know what I have, what I have accomplished. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 to 24, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Love is also not arrogant. Are you arrogant? Do you think highly of yourself? See, humility is just the right estimation of who you really are. Arrogance is to think more highly of yourself than who you really are. Sorry for that. It's the same thing as proud. And what does God say about the proud? He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians also says, It does not, which is love, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It isn't self-centered. It's not selfish. In chapter 10, verse 24, the Apostle Paul said, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 24. The Apostle Paul said, let no one seek his own good, which is completely countercultural. If you ask the world, what is the point of your life? Well, to get what I want. The Bible says, no. Do not seek your own good. Life is not about what you want. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Philippians 2, verse 3 to 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Not some things, not a few things, not maybe rarely, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
the best churches, the best friendships, the best workplaces, and the best marriages are when people are not insisting on their own way. It's when they're putting other people's interest above their own. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in our marriage, which has been a huge blessing, is that, again, it's completely countercultural. Marriage is a very good picture of this. My goal is not to get what I want most from the marriage, or what I want for myself in the marriage. I mean, my, in my sinfulness, in my nature, that's my goal, but that's not what it should be. It is the interest of my wife. And imagine what kind of a marriage, what happens in a marriage when both individuals, the husband and the wife, are seeking not their own desires, but the desires of the other. Which ironically means you will always be served well. You are the worst at serving yourself. My wife serves me better than I can serve myself. And by the grace of God, I serve her better than she can serve herself. That's the whole point of two becoming one. You know, whenever a couple gets a divorce because of irreconcilable differences, what it really means is they had irreconcilable interests. That they were not working to serve the other. They say, well, we grew apart, we changed, and no. You stopped trying to put the other person's needs above your own. And when that happens, it will always lead to a disaster. And that's true in every kind of relationship. Not just in marriage, in any kind of, mar- in any kind of relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Even in intimacy, in a marriage, your body belongs to your spouse, and your body belongs to them. So you must live to serve them, not yourself. When both do that, it will transform the marriage. I know I just got married two years ago. I know nothing about marriage. I'm simply saying what the Bible says. Love is not irritable. It's similar to when we say, oh, I'm just so, this other person is so annoying. It's similar to when we lose our patience. Usually, Actually, all the time, all the time, when you become irritated, that's a you problem again. That's not to say that some people can't be difficult. They can be. I can be very difficult. But the reality is, 
you are responsible for your reactions to people. If someone irritates you, according to God himself, that's a you problem. The Bible says, be slow to take offense. The Bible also says love isn't resentful. Are you an angry person? Are you bitter? Are you unforgiving? In our culture, it's very easy to be that way. Frankly, especially toward our parents. We are so quick to remember all the sins. Sometimes it's not even sins, but things that just kind of bothered us about our parents. And we are resentful forgetting we've sinned against our parents too. And they are, hopefully, the good godly parents who are forgiving and not resentful. Are you a resentful person? Are you bitter? Are you angry? If you are, repent. Repent. Verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, which is love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. With the truth. Love does not encourage or tolerate sin. It tells people the truth about sin. Telling people the truth about sin, including the wrath of God, is love. If it's done with gentleness, with grace. If we don't tell the, the world the truth about sin, it's not, it's not unloving. Sorry, if we tell the world the truth about sin, we're not being hateful. We're being loving towards them. It's like, for example, if you see someone running towards a burning building and you say nothing. Is that love? Guys, is that, is that love? In the same way, if someone's running toward the wrath of God, towards death and eternity without God, it's unloving to say nothing. It's loving, however, to warn them with gentleness, patience, grace. Verse 7 to 8. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Which means that love isn't suspicious. It's not always thinking, oh, I know you're up to something. I know you're up to something bad. It doesn't assume the worst of others. It assumes the best of people. And it never, ever stops. You don't ever stop loving someone. There's never, ever any excuse to stop loving a person. I'm not referring to if you're dating someone and, you know, you choose not to be with them. I'm not referring to that. 
you love every person made in the image of God. Every single person. You are commanded to love your enemies, right? Your enemies. People who hate you, you are commanded to love them. Christ said that if you love those who love you, what credit is that? It's natural. It's easy. It's easy. But if you love those who hate you, that's hard. That's love. That also means when, when um, Paul, the Apostle Paul says love never ends, it also means that love isn't just a feeling. It is a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. Because feelings can stop. But love is also a choice. And he's commanded you to never, ever make the choice of stopping to love another person. You must continue to love people, even when it's hard. Every single person in this world is a sinner. Therefore, there will be times where it will be hard to love them, including you. But God commands you to love them anyway. If God commands you to love your enemy, it also means he's commanding you to love your spouse when they say something that harms you. Now, your spouse isn't your enemy, but if you're supposed to love your enemy, you definitely love your spouse at all times, even when it's very difficult. How much better would, our, would all of our relationships be if that's how we lived, right? If you want to be like that kind of person who loves the way that God is commanding all of us to love, be that example. It is better to give than to receive. It's good to receive love from people, that's great. But be the example of the person who loves others, even if you do not return it. Love them. And I'll briefly explain how all of this, might, it might surprise you, but all of this actually ties into the major issues in our culture right now. For example, abortion, race issues, LGBT issues, they're all summed up by a lack of love for God and neighbor. So for example, what is abortion? What is the heart of abortion? It is someone insisting on their own way, right? They say things like, my body, my choice. First of all, the baby's body isn't a woman's body. A woman does not have four legs, right? The baby has their own body. And also, the thing is, even the woman's body does not belong to her. 
It belongs to God. So this idea that my body, my choice, therefore I can have an abortion is absolutely ridiculous. At the same time, God says, love your enemies. See, it's easy for us to hate pro-abortion people. It's easy for us to hate women who've had abortions. I want to be very clear about this. That is evil. In fact, the Bible says in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. If you hate someone over the abortion issue, you're guilty of the same thing. You're guilty of the same thing. If you hate someone, you have the same attitude that leads to abortion and murder. So don't be a hypocrite. Love them. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue justice. No. We, justice needs to be, like, it's, it's important. Preborn babies need justice. But you can pursue justice with kindness, patience, humility, love. Also, race issues, especially critical race theory, for example, where it says basically that every white person is a racist. It says that everything, essentially, is racist these days. It's really built on resentment. It's built on bitterness over the past. It says because of white supremacy, slavery, segregation, therefore I resent white people. A lack of love, repaying evil for evil. It's also envy. Terms like white privilege. Because you are white, you have privilege. I don't have what you have. Envy. It's all envy. It's also especially assuming the worst of every white person. There is a book called White Fragility that was, how many of you have heard of that book? Yeah, unfortunately, you all have too, huh? It's a terrible, terrible book. It's an evil book. In that book, the author, who, by the way, is white, um, says a positive white identity is an impossible goal. That if you are white, you can never, ever have a positive identity. Why? Because you are a racist. According to critical race theory, to that book, and by the way, that book is the best-selling book on racism over the last five years. It's very popular. It's being, that's, what's, that's what's being taught in schools, in some churches even. It's horrific. Nevertheless, it assumes the worst of white people. You know, I, uh, several years ago, I was walking in a tunnel and um, I was, this is a, a dark tunnel, and I was walking in there to get to a library from school. And 
as soon as I, as soon as I um, got into the, tu- into the tunnel, I see this white girl. She's on the other end of the tunnel. She's walking towards me. I'm walking towards her. As soon as she sees me, she just becomes terrified. She just tightly clutches her, her bag. And she essentially kind of hugs the tunnel. She wanted to be so far away from me. She hugs the tunnel and she speed walks right away, right past me. And immediately I think, here it is happening again. It's because I'm black. She's a racist. But as I kept walking, I asked myself, wait a minute. What does the Bible say about this? You see, I've, I've said to my younger sister, she should be very careful about being in that tunnel because it's very vulnerable to young women. Then I said, hmm, if she was black, would I assume that she was being a racist? No. Then I thought, what if maybe she's a victim of an assault? And if it was any guy, she would be as afraid. I remember that I'm supposed to count her as more significant than myself. I'm supposed to put her interest above my own, seeking her good over my own. Then I realized there is one racist in that tunnel, and it's not her, it's me. I'm assuming the worst of her because she's white. Now, I don't know for sure what her reasons were, but it doesn't matter. I don't know. But I know my reasoning. And I was assuming the worst of her because of her skin color. That's critical race theory. But it's all because of a lack of love. I wasn't loving her. All these issues, abortion, critical race theory, it's all because of a lack of love. Let's get to the last point before I conclude this. LGBT issues as well, homosexuality and transgenderism, it's also a lack of love. They say love is love. Because, again, they don't know how to define love. But it's also, again, all because when, when peop- if anyone ever pursues homosexuality or transgenderism, at a very basic level, they're insisting on their own way as well. They are refusing to deny themselves. They're making it about themselves and not God. And frankly, when someone... How do I say this? When someone chooses to be, rom- to be romantic or sexual with someone of the same gender, they're not loving their neighbor as well. They're not seeking their own good. And especially when the world, including some so-called Christians, say, I am 
welcoming of you. I am loving. I'm not like those Christians who believe the Bible. I love you, therefore I'm going to affirm you. That hate. They hate homosexuals and trans people. If you affirm their sin, if you rejoice at their wrongdoing, as the Bible says, you are hating them. It's not loving to lie, especially when you're lying to them so they can face the wrath of God. Besides, we can't outlove God. The loving God has said it is sin, therefore, it is loving to say it's sin. I know this, is, this has been a difficult uh, sermon. I know if you're like me, as I was preparing for this, it's very convicting. All of us have failed to love as we should. All of us, we're all sinners. We all are imperfect, sinful, frankly, hateful people. But there is one person who is a perfect example of what this kind of love looks like. That's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8, again, says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's Christ. That's Jesus. He is patient. He's long-suffering. He is kind. The Bible says that he is so gentle, so kind, that even if a bruised reed is in his hands, he will not break it. He's not rude. First Peter says that even when he was reviled against, he did not revile in return. He did not insist on his own way. Before the cross, what did he say in his prayer? Lord, let this, pass, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but your will be done. He is not irritable or resentful. That's why, if you believe in him, he's forgiven you. He's forgiving. He's merciful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That's why sin grieves him so much that he suffered on the cross. The Son of God on the cross because of our wrongdoing. He does not rejoice in it. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, even the cross, enduring the cross to the end. And his love never ends. His love endures forever. He who began a good work in you will bring it into completion.
Love isn't love. God is love. Jesus is love. That's the gospel that we have. That's our hope. We are imperfect. We are sinners. We are by nature hateful people. But we have a king. We have a savior who is full of love. And when we fail him, when we are unkind, we can go to him because he is kind. We can trust in him. He is our hope. He is our savior. He's our love.